Baker's Dozen with Stephen Hallam, Master Baker and Chair of Judges, the Tiptree World Bread Awards, UK and USA. Baker's Dozen on Food FM. What's the difference between bread, biscuits, crackers and crisp bread? Simple answer is absolutely huge, but there is a synonymous thread linking them all, and that's flour, skill, time, and hopefully passion from the people that make them. In Scandinavia, crisp breads, or knackbrot as they are known over there, are a traditional and important staple that are eaten and enjoyed in much the same way as bread might be eaten here in the UK. They are an ideal accompaniment for cheese, pate, fruit, vegetables, for dipping, scooping, or simply enjoyed on their own. In the world of crisp breads, Peter's Yard are considered by many to be the premier brand, the Rolls-Royce of crisp breads, and the ones against which all others are judged. Their crisp breads are made and baked in the UK using flour supplied by a mill in Gloucestershire that has been producing flour since the time of the Doomsday Book and uses traditional methods and a variety of traditional grains to mill organic flour of exceptional quality. And that mill, of course, is Shipton Mill. I'm joined today by three people, Ian Tenkor, who together with friend and colleague Wendy, co-founded Peter's Yard in 2008 and is today the operations director. John Lister is the founder of Shipton Mill, who having discovered the ruined remnants of the mill back in 1981, lovingly restored it and now has returned the mill to a thriving and pivotal business within the Cotswold countryside. John joined the Peters Yard business in 2012 and it is in his artisan bakery, the Celtic Bakery, where the crisp beds are made and baked. Riz Bell is the technical manager at Peters Yard. Having been involved with food technology and particularly baking all her life, Riz is has the challenging task of ensuring Peter's Yard crisp breads are made and baked exactly as they should be, always without compromise to their quality, and that they leave the bakery and arrive on customer shelves in pristine condition. And that, if I may add, is no mean task. Ian, how did Peter's Yard begin? And what was your main inspiration behind it? Or where did the name come from? It's a very long story, but in brief, um, Peter Jard began as a retail bakery and coffee shop in Edinburgh and was founded by Peter, Peter Jungfist, um, a Swedish entrepreneur. At the same time, Wendy, Wendy Wilson Betts and I were working at Cabri Schweppes. I made the decision I wanted to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I probably made that decision when I was um, 20. And it took me another 30 years to, to sort of execute it. So I came up with a plan for a Swedish retail bakery and discussed it with Wendy to get her input. And she fell in love with the idea. We, like all good entrepreneurs, wanted to do some due diligence. And along the way, we were told about Peter's new bakery. So we went up to Edinburgh and met Peter. Two or three conversations later, agreed not to get involved with the retail bakery but to launch the crisp bread brand, the crisp bread which he sold in his retail bakery. So that's how we started uh, all those years ago. Fascinating. That then led to an interest, no doubt, in everything uh, Swedish. And of course, your wife is from Sweden as well, I believe. And after various exploratory trips over to Sweden, you discovered this, this fascinating bakery over there that was making 
the Swedish crisp breads in the old-fashioned way, let's say, the traditional way? Actually, so Peter was already... Peter, again, it was a very long story, but Peter mm-hmm. co-owned a bakery in Sweden and then decided to come to the UK to open a bakery here. And in that bakery, he... Uh, sold crisp bread, which he initially imported from Sweden. So that's where we discovered the crisp bread. So in those early days, we imported crisp bread from Sweden. But very early on, uh, we decided we had to make it in the UK. And Peter was using Shipton Mill flour. So we got to meet John. And John began to hand make crisp bread for us at the Celtic bakeries very, very early on. So in those early days, it was hand-making crisp bread about 50 kilos a week and of course when bakers are doing anything handmade uh, there's always a degree of i was going to say tolerance but it's more intolerance isn't there there's, there's always a nothing is absolutely precise which in some circles is absolutely great but as soon as you start producing them uh, on a larger scale and to be packaged etc can be quite a a challenge to control no doubt so it, it was yeah it was yeah. Um, it was a huge challenge in those early days. And but right from day one, I, um, I wanted to find a way of producing the crisp bread in the same way as it was being handmade, but producing it to larger volumes. And we took a long time to find a process that uh, replicated the hand rolling and cutting of crisp bread. That's actually how John really got involved in the business because we have found... Uh, the equipment, we found the supplier, and John purchased the equipment, put it in his bakery, and then the three partners in the business became four. Of course, it's it's very, very easy, unless there's some strict controls in place, to uh, change a product to suit a purpose. And, and sadly, all too often, many places and times and products, we see that happen. A lovely piece of kit, but the, the process, because it's all handmade, doesn't quite suit the machine, so you have to do something slightly different, and all of a sudden you, you've changed the product, haven't you? If it's allowed to happen, of course. Yeah, we were absolutely determined for that not to happen, and the recipe and ingredients we use today are basically the same as when it was handmade. So you're right, it's very easy to change the product to fit the process, and that's why we spent such a long time to find a process that replicated what human beings do when they roll and cut crisp bread. So we, we were really pleased. In the early days, we entered the handmade product for the Great Taste Awards, and we, we got two stars, if I remember. And a few years later, we entered the product that we, we made to greater scale, and it won three stars. So I think we've taken the handmade product and improved it further. Which is what it's all about, isn't it? I think I think if you try and maintain the quality of, of uh, any product, then it either stays the same or goes downhill. One's always got to look to improve, to go onwards and upwards. John, tell me, who or what inspired you all those 40 years ago to set about restoring this ramshackle mill? Wow, yes, it's, it's quite a romantic story in some ways. Um, I went with uh, my grandmother, curiously. She took me to see a watermill in West Wales called Fellingeri. And I was so inspired by the work that they were doing and the traditional way that they were producing flour. I somehow thought, I can do this. 
And we set about looking for a mill uh, by searching some 2,000 miles in a week to look for a ruined mill that we could restore. And that's how it all came about. I had no idea what lay ahead. That's a whole other story. So you weren't actually a miller as such with milling knowledge? No, I was trained as an anthropologist, so uh, quite distinct, I'm afraid. And did I know what wheat looked like? Um, no, it was all new to me, so uh, it was very much a new experience um, and tremendously exciting. So with a group of friends, we set about restoring the mill and had uh, it took us 12 months in total to rebuild it and get all the stones turning once more. Gosh, romance with a capital R. Shipton Mill is often described as the UK's leading organic flour mill. Do you believe or have any thoughts about how important the quality and the provenance of the grain is to be able you, for you to produce the flour the way you do? Well, that's a great question. So. You could not make good flour without good wheat. And we're fortunate because we're small. We can search all of Britain for the finest wheats that are grown. And if you imagine, if you're a very big mill, you have to make do with an average sort of co-op blend of grains. Then we're fortunate to be able to look for the Mouton Rothschild of grain and we can search farms individually and then bring the grain from each farm directly to the mill. We don't have to get a, a, a blend of grains that has been graded perhaps to one ordinary standard. We can look for the extraordinary. So you, you must have some very good and close relationships with the farmers themselves. Yeah, that's the exciting thing, making connections between the people who grow it and what happens to the flour later on and the artisan bakers who bake their bread. So for a farmer, more often than not, they may not actually know the destiny of their grain that they've so carefully produced. It could just go into a big pile and they'll never hear about its, um, its destiny. Whereas with us, they take a great deal of pride knowing that perhaps it's gone to some of the finest artisan bakers in the country or a particular chef. And often or not, we will actually mill the grain for a farmer who wants to bake it perhaps in his farm shop or something similar. So they get very, very excited when they can see the connection between what they're growing and what it's making. I can understand that. Very emotional. You, you're actually seeing the end product, aren't you, as opposed to it just getting lost in the mass of, of whatever it might be going towards a bit. It's tremendous. Yeah, it's tremendously exciting that. And it really, it's the same for us, uh, you know, seeing where our flower goes. It adds a whole layer of meaning and enjoyment and connection with the bakeries, which if we didn't have that, uh, we would be far less um, engaged in our whole process. The, the, the grinding process at uh, Shipton Mill is, um, if I may say so, the traditional, uh, what's been happening for thousands of years, stone grinding, um, as opposed to roller milling. 
And could you perhaps explain the difference? Okay, so stone grinding, yes. From Egyptian times onwards, people have ground grains into flour between two stones. And it has a fabulous rhythm to it that is, um, it's almost sensuous. It just gently grinds away at a pace that is so slow uh, one pair of stones might make a hundred kilos of flour in an hour. So it's, it's very, very slow. With roller grinding, a system of milling that was introduced in the 19th century, it's, you're able to grind at many hundreds of tons in a day. And the largest mills are producing at a phenomenal rate. I guess if you ask me what's the difference in the flour quality, uh, many people have said, well, the temperature of stone grinding is lower or there's some mystical element to it. I probably would have to disagree. I think the flour that comes from stone, whilst it's produced much more slowly, is milled at roughly the same temperature as on a roller mill. So there's a lot of hearsay about why stone ground might be better for you. The reality is it's actually a very energy efficient way of producing flour. And it's, you put the wheat in the top of the pairs of stones, you'll have a runner stone on the top, and then you have what's called the bed stone underneath. And the grain flows into the middle of the runner stone on top and comes out of flour on the side. So it's a very, very simple process. And in simplicity, there is an extraordinary beauty in it. Simple's good, isn't it? Whatever walk of life, simple has to be good. Now, the stones themselves, I, I believe you can't just use any stone. Um, there's a particular stone that is the Rolls Royce in the world of stone grinding. Yeah, I guess over those thousands of years, people have selected all sorts of locally uh, mined stones. And in Britain, uh, we have traditionally used uh, some sandstones, particularly for producing animal feeds from grains or barley flowers or oat flowers. But for the best hard wheat grinding, we've had to go to France over the centuries to a small place in the Marne Valley where they had a quarry that mined, if that's the correct expression, perhaps quarried, um, pieces of a marble-like stone called French burr. And then these pieces are shaped into a round stone and set in plaster of Paris. But the surface tension on them and the way that you're able to dress them is just perfect to give you the right particle size when you mill. Now the mine or the quarry in France is in fact closed. So there are, there's no more French burrstone being quarried. And we've collected over the years um, reserves of our precious stones. And today, in fact, in the mill, we're just dressing them for the first time. So dressing is when you take them apart, you lay them flat, and then you work on the grinding surface to create the ridge and furrows, uh, which will 
uh, give you the perfect grind. I, I, I ought to say that um, traditionally, the the millwright would visit us on a bicycle once a year, maybe twice a year, and offer to dress our stones. And the 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 cry that you put out when he arrived would be, "Show me the metal you're made of." And that expression you probably have heard, but it comes from the small shards of metal that embed your forearm as you dress the stones with your metal pick. And the metal fractures and sticks in your skin. So the most experienced of the millwrights will, in fact, have lots of pieces of metal in their forearm. (laughs) And you know that you'll be safe to employ them. Absolutely. They can do a good job. (laughs) <laughs> do, do, you, do you still have to buy that skill in, or have you now got it in-house? Well, I was taught by a master millwright from William Garner in, down in uh, what was then Mark Lane, which was the, the, the street in which all the millstones were um, made uh, back in London. Uh, and he taught me and he gave me his dressing bill, uh, mill bill, and tools. And now I'm not sure, yeah, who would pass that knowledge on. I must be one of the last in the line. Um, and we also use um, a millwright who comes to help us twice a year to dress them. So we got two lots of skills there. Incredibly important. Mm. Now, it's... It would be a log- logical progression, uh, I believe, for a miller to have a bakery. And uh, indeed, your good self does at the Celtic Bakery. H- how did you become uh, associated with Peter's Yard and, and uh, supplying the flour for their, well, not just supplying the flour, but uh, making them, making their uh, fantastic crackers? Peter's Yard started off in Edinburgh as a bakery uh, there. And I got to know Peter, the original Peter, who um, was Swedish and was living and working in, in Edinburgh. And we supplied flour to his bakery for many years. And out of that came our conversation about crisp bread, because crisp bread had been a passion of mine for years to make a most delicious one. And I thought, Ah, well, maybe we could do something together. And that's how we got together. Fascinating. And uh, still going, well, going from strength to strength. Very much, yeah. By by all accounts. What do you find are your, or where are your biggest challenges? In the mill or in the bakery? Sorry for that. That was that was quite a, a cruel question. But being Not a baker, really. being no. a baker, being a baker myself, I I know. Well, I, th- I think I know a lot of the, the trials and and the hurdles and the hoops of, of uh, yeah. involved in a bakery. But uh, you you have a foot in both camps. Yeah. So I think we should join them together. Um, and firstly, one of the beautiful things about flour and about wheat is that it's gathered under the sun, hopefully, Um, not so much in Britain, but, um, and it's subject to all sorts of weather conditions and soil conditions and timing of harvesting, etc. And that is 
that's really fascinating because those elements, the soil, the wind, the weather, the sun, all lend the grain extraordinary qualities. And then, so for us as a, a miller, we seek to blend it and our skills at blending lend the flavors, the quality, the time it takes to develop in the bakery, on the mixers. And we look at that so closely. We've got some wonderful um, pieces of equipment now that um, gives us a lot of insight into how the flour will bake. And then on the other side of that, as a baker, you know how difficult it is to anticipate the weather and the heat in the bakery, how hot or cold it will be, how long you need to mix, how much water you need to add, how long the sour will be just right. And it's a whole series of skills about sensing and observing and making beautiful products. So I, they two both join up together. And we need to understand both sides, both the wheat and the flour, in order to make great crisp breads and breads. I might be accused of being a sentimental or bias on this, but I, I can't think of anything that gives me more satisfaction than uh, nurturing my sourdough that I have at home, that's uh, ensuring it doesn't go too far, it's not too acidic, keeping it just right, and it varies throughout the day of the week, the, the month, the year, because of the, the heat, the cold, the season, and then making some bread. And, and it's a slow process now, isn't it? You know, we, we need to go slower and not faster. I think it was Prince of Wales who highlighted that a number of years ago in the fast world that we live. And um, yes, the joy of bread. In your uh, life, there's been a lot of achievements and, and uh, just alluded to some of them. Um, is resurrecting the mill what you would consider to be your biggest achievement in terms of pride and personal satisfaction? Um, I guess uh, it was it was yeah seeing it come back to life and bringing a small business back into the countryside has been hugely rewarding. But one of the consequences and one of the many changes we've seen over the last ten to twenty years is the number of young people coming back into baking. A lot of that, most well, many of them will have extraordinary degrees in physics or politics or philosophy, and they come from a totally new background than the traditional baking families. And with that has come a, a huge surge in interest and a big change in the types of baking that we're doing in this country. So if we could claim anything, you know, being part of that re revival and development, and now Britain makes some of the most fabulous breads of any country in the world, I think I'd like to say that we feel we are part of that change and we've been able to introduce flowers and methods and advise young bakers and help them get started. So in many cases, that's been the most rewarding. I can buy that, absolutely. And in the industry as a whole, we are seeing, uh, I have an involvement with the World Bread Awards and uh, the number of not just young, but 
total career change bakers that we're seeing uh, coming into the industry and doing well. Yes, Tremendously they, exciting, really exciting. It, it is. I, th I think the future holds well. Riz, if I can uh, ask you, how, how did you come to be involved in the baking industry? It's, it's also almost a funny story because I came to the UK to finish my degree in food science. And um, the first time I met my course director, I couldn't understand him because my English was so poor. And <laughs> the year after I came back and did my final year and he was impressed that I managed to get a first class degree after not being able to speak to him the year before. And um, he helped me to get my first job in the industry many years ago. And so my first job was with a company that did dried fruits, uh, packaged dried fruits. And very soon I got bored because I, I thought I'd learned what I could learn and, and couldn't move forward. So I then went to work for one of the big bread manufacturers, tin manufacturers, and that's how I got into the bread industry. Soon after, I realized that I was I almost wasn't true to my roots because I, I grew up seeing my grandmother making bread every day and sometimes taking it to the local wood oven, so the public ovens. And so I then decided to go to work for Maison Blanc, and they were more artisan, more premium. Since then, I've been working with companies that make premium products and are true to the simple process and traditional process. And particularly using sourdough. Yes, yeah, particularly using sourdough. And and, and again, it joins the, my grandmother was also making sourdough bread and she had, I remember this little pot that she covered every every, every day and fed every day. So it, it's a really nice way to get back to, to my roots. It's interesting, isn't it? That if you do look back in time, bread, uh, I know we're talking crisp beds, but, but bread was very much just basic ingredients and there was no yeast added. It was just uh, the, the sourdough starter or culture and add more flour to it and some water naturally. Let time take its place and bake it wherever there was a hot stone or an oven and, and uh, keep some of this, the dough back for the next day, etc., etc. And we, there seems to be a, a move to go back to that simplicity for all sorts of reasons and uh, lots of people even making uh, bread at home now what what one of the usps of the peter's yard crisp breads is is its inclusion of a sourdough starter or culture presumably i would imagine this is refreshed on a regular basis it's the, the mother dough is very old indeed and do you find it particularly easy to control it in the bakery, especially the acidity, because that's when it can go wrong and cause a lot of problems, can't it? Yeah. So I think, as you mentioned earlier, like being consistent, and especially when we're using just simple ingredients, every ingredient in that recipe counts and making sure that we have that consistency in the acidity is so important because that's what gives the tanginess to taste of our crisp bread. So we use tanks and they are refreshed, as you said, every day. We keep the mother at the bottom, so you know that that's never taken out. Like the the bottom of the tank is never taken out unless they want to do cleaning, and then obviously that's being kept separately. Um, sure. And so so we we feed it with flour and water the same way as anyone would do at home when making sourdough. 
And those tanks are kept in a temperature controlled room so that we make sure that we've got a consistent uh, temperature so that it gives us the right acidity. Because we want, obviously, those yeast and bacteria to work in the same way day in, day out. Yes. Temp- control, as in all aspects of, of baking, control of temperature is key, isn't it? A lot of people think when making bread or people who aren't in the industry put it this way, think, well, I'll use some hot water or some warm water and speed the job along. Oh, dear, oh, dear, because the result shows in the in the end loaf. So the, the, the flour that John uh, so lovingly supplies from Shipton Mill, one of the... Uh, I think the largest organic, uh, number one bakery in the UK for supplying organic flour. Do you find the speck of the flour uh, is crucial for the biscuits, more crucial than it might be, say, for for the crisp bread, sorry, more crucial than it might be for, uh, say, making bread? Absolutely. I think because our dough, like the dough that we use to make crisp breads, is a bit tougher than, than a, a bread dough. And also we... The, the process involves making laminating that dough to such a thin dough that having the right flour is so important. That flour has got to have the right protein level because from the protein you can make that with the hydration, it makes the gluten and that gluten gives you the elasticity. If you don't have the right elasticity, then you can't take that dough through the rollers and you can't make it as thin as you want to be able to get the right texture and the right thickness of crisp bread. So it's not just about the, the level of protein, it's the quality of the protein that's in there as well, which relates on where the, the grain has come from, etc., etc. In the bakery, what do you find is your biggest challenge? I, I might be able to help you uh, along here so you don't get into trouble from the boss. But my, <laughs> my, my, my experience in bakeries is give a baker a recipe and they immediately want to change it. They want to do their own thing. And no matter how skilled, sort of very good they are, and, and with all the artisan skills required to make bread and the patience and the time and the molding and getting the mixing just right. So just sometimes there needs to be a little bit of tolerance on, on water content, etc., in a dough. Bakers just love to put their own twist on it and from your point of view, I would imagine that is an absolute nightmare because they, they just won't follow what they're being asked to do. And chefs, dare I say, are very similar as well, but that, we're not talking about chefing, we're talking about bakers. <laughs> might, might this ring a bell? <laughs> Absolutely. I, it's, it's funny, this is um, something that we have to, well, I have to deal with, especially in technical, on a regular basis. Because they always have, I mean, we have fantastic people. Like the bakers are amazing. And to be honest, I listen to them a lot when we're developing products or when we want to improve products because they know the dough, they know how it works through the line and and they work with it day in, day out. So we have to listen to them. But when it comes to making a product that's high quality consistently and making sure that we've got the right amount of the crisp breads in a tray that doesn't change in size. <laughs> yes. We need to make sure that they always follow the same recipe, the same settings, the same quality standards. So to to be able to, it's a right balance to have to not, you know, stop them from being creative when we want them to be creative because we you know, when we develop a product, there's such a wonderful team to have. But on a daily basis, we want them to stop that urge to 
to tweak things. So I do I, I, I do understand what you, you're coming from in terms of, you know, having to have that right balance. And with the shape of your crisp bread as well, you really don't want any uh, shrinkage through overworking and what have you. And they've got to fit into a package that's got to weigh X and then it's got to be transported, hasn't it, to wherever it might be. Uh, so eventually when the customer gets them home, having bought them and taken them home, they're not all broken. They're still all in one piece. Yep. Um, and every bit of the jigsaw is so important. Ian, if, if I can come back to you and, uh, and ask innovation, how important is innovation to you? It is important, but it, innovation has to be focused. Uh, otherwise it becomes proliferation. So um, we in, innovate very carefully. So probably the best example of that is our most recent launch, which is a savoury snack called Bites, where we think what we've developed is different and better and therefore worth innovating. And it took us a long time to develop that product because it builds on our crisp bread. And one thing, I was listening carefully, and I always learn a lot from Riz, um, that we didn't touch on was the thickness of our crisp bread. And our crisp bread typically is less than one millimeter thick. So baking that product is a real challenge. And for our new Bites product, we actually have taken that down to around 0.6 of a millimeter. So it truly is a different product and we're very proud to launch it. And it's not proliferation, it's something new to the market. And that'll take it into a different uh, category, uh, yeah. I would imagine as well, won't it? Exactly, exactly. And we're, we're learning, we're learning. We're still a relatively young company. And as you say, the savoury snacking category from a commercial viewpoint is very different than the savoury biscuit category. There, there is a saying that uh, 80% of any success is familiarity or, or a launch of a new product and uh, still using the the, uh, the same basic crisp bread. I say basic, um, but the, the, the same crisp bread that you've always made. But taking it so thin is conjuring up a nightmare in, in my eyes because if that dough isn't, uh, if the hydration of the dough isn't exactly right, that is an absolute nightmare going through the rollers. But of course, uh, Rich, you're there to uh, deal with that, aren't you? So uh, there's no problem there. <laughs> No problem at all. It's always worth. <laughs> but you, you're completely right. You're completely right. That also good. That the, the the thickness is so crucial. Like having anything that changes, even like adding a bit too much dust in flour can make a difference. Remarkable. We have to, yeah, keep an eye on everything that we do. Ian, out of your range, which is uh, the best seller and which is your favourite? The best seller is the, the original product um, in the, the mini, the cracker size. That's um, by far and away the best seller. My favourite is probably the Spelt and Thick um, for more than one reason. One is I think it tastes great. It, again, it won three stars in the Great Taste Awards uh, two years ago. Uh, but second of all, it was developed by my wife in our kitchen with the help of the master baker at the time at Celtic. So they literally invented that from scratch, um, started baking it in our ovens in our kitchen, and it's now, yeah, the second highest selling recipe 
no range. For a new line to come in in the top five is uh, very commendable indeed. A couple of quickfire questions for you. Do you have any obsessions? I'm not sure I do. I have a, a lot of loves. I, I love music. I love football. I love sport. I love the family. I don't think I'm obsessive, but yeah, I, um, I love all those things. Or, or pet hates? Something that really winds you up? Probably too many to mention. Um, <laughs> probably the normal one. I hate people yeah. parking on corners of uh, streets yeah, where they're risking accidents, but uh, that's probably my biggest pet hate. And Riz, do you have a favourite gadget or piece of equipment, either in the bakery or at home? I think like, the first thing that comes into mind might surprise you a bit, but it's um, a piece of equipment at home, and that's my boxing gloves. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, quite a bit of combat and sports like that, so, yeah. <laughs> that's and my favourite piece of equipment. If you could switch lies with somebody for a day, who would you choose? I think I'd, I'd love to be an astronaut for a day, just to be able to be in space. I think that's takes you something completely different from what you can experience it's coming isn't it you can get a space flight soon from uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, i think at the uh, moment it's probably out of my budget so <laughs> uh, we'll wait and see if it becomes affordable and yeah. and um, for drinking do you prefer tea or coffee definitely tea being a moroccan that moroccan tea is one of my so what makes Moroccan tea different to uh, what you might call your, your British breakfast tea? So we use dried tea leaves and fresh mint. I used to put a lot of sugar before, but now I've learned not to do that, but it's still delicious. So. And, and yeah, just a mixture of that. Sounds refreshing. It is. And Ian, do you have a favourite film? Yes, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I just love that film makes you laugh it makes you cry i saw it a couple of years ago at pinewood studios on a large screen and it was i think it's about 70 years old and it still had people laughing out loud and crying 10 minutes later john tell me what what do you eat for comfort i think it's got to be chocolate <laughs> i think um, i think when things are getting desperate it's get out the dark preferably raspberry chips um flavored chocolate and and really sit back and love it smashing and uh, don't keep it in the fridge of course do you no it doesn't no, that, that's, a, that, that, that's a red sauce or a brown sauce question that one <laughs> yes. uh, should you or shouldn't and we we understand why you should never keep chocolate in the <laughs> fridge and and then finally who do you most admire well i guess um out of all the world leaders um writers, poets. Um, I have a very big soft spot for Gandhi. Um, I enjoy enormously his meditative approach. I love the non-violent approach to living uh, and what changes he achieved. Extraordinary and uh, in a relatively peaceful manner, which I thought was a huge achievement for over a billion people in the world. So I put him right up there as uh, one of my great heroes. Indeed, yes. And a lot of young people today will probably uh, not know who Gandhi is, but they uh, they need to buy a book or watch a film. Because that's <laughs> absolutely right. Very spiritually moving, uh, all the work that he did. Well, Ian, Riz, John, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been fascinating uh, and um, here's wishing every success in the future 
uh, as Peter's yard goes from strength to strength. If any of our listeners would like to uh, know more, then please visit the appropriate website. So petersyard.com, shipton-mill.com and theceltikbakers.co.uk. Thank you, Stephen. Great to talk to you. Baker's Dozen on Food FM. Baker's Dozen with Stephen Hallam, Master Baker and Chair of Judges, the Tiptree World Bread Awards, UK and USA. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.